Welcome to the Gospel Journey Podcast. The Gospel Journey exists to help our people get into discipling relationships that are centered on God's Word and led by His Spirit. Today, we're in week 9 of Path 8, the book of Hebrews, and we'll be in chapter 12. My name is Jamie Trussell, and I'm joined again by our missions pastor and elder, Steve Winstead. Steve, thanks for joining us again. Yeah, excited to be here. So we're on the last, or next to last week of this gospel journey through Hebrews. So if y'all have been with us the whole time, we hope this has been a blessing to you. Quick recap here. Uh, a remembering big theme in the book of Hebrews is this author writing to this church that he's intimately familiar with, uh, exhorting them to endure, to persevere, to uh, not depart from following Christ and returning to, in their specific context, the old covenant forms of worship found in Judaism. And so, uh, as we've walked through the previous couple chapters, the idea of the new covenant, a better covenant, this cloud of witnesses in chapter 11, are additional uh, uh, points he's putting forth in his exhortation for them to keep following Christ. So, we begin in chapter 12 uh, with these words Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which close or which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the profounder and or the founder and perfecter of our faith. Uh, so, Steve, coming off chapter eleven, this idea of being surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses is a unique thought. Don't see it anywhere else in Scripture, but mm-hmm. meant to be an incredibly encouraging one. Yeah, in chapter twelve. What we do, we transition. In the book, uh, the first 11 chapters were primarily dealing with doctrine, which so many of the epistles do. They'll do a doctrine first because we've got to get our belief and what we believe really settled. Here in 12, the shift happens to really what's practical. So mm-hmm. that's the move we're making here. And these first two verses, I mean, these are some of those verses that people are quick to memorize because it's, you know, mm-hmm. if, you, if you ever do a topical memory system, this is one of those top verses for people to do. And it's for a reason because it's such a powerful verse about who we are and how we're to live. And it launches us into a very practical of as a result of uh, Christ and who he is, that there's no one greater than Christ out of that, laid out in the first 11 chapters, here's now how you live. So you, you mentioned it talks about this cloud of witnesses. Mm-hmm. Now, there's some uh, a little bit of uh, openness or debate on, on what is this talking about. And the first inclination I think most people have that I have is to go, well, that's probably, you know, a bunch of people up in heaven watching us, cheering for us and rooting for us. Um Really, the more I studied, I realized that, that I don't think that's what it is. That doesn't seem to be consistent with what a lot of Scripture is talking about. The cloud of witnesses, first off, it rolls right back out of chapter 11. Which chapter 11, we have just went through the sort of this hall of fame of all the saints of the faith. Right. So that's the, the witnesses it's talking about. But it's not talking about them so much, I think, in a sense of they're cheering for us, rooting for us, watching us. But know that we are looking at these cloud of witnesses who have set an example for us right. as to how to live out the faith. Yeah, and it really comes down to these first two verses. Uh, as you're saying, we're transitioning to, to the living out of our faith to draw strength and encouragement from uh, two 
uh, not equal, but two sources here. One, the saints of old that finished well to look at that and know, okay, God brought them through to completion. He can do the same for us. And then the greater source that it says here is looking to Jesus, the author and, and or, or the founder or some some translations say author yep. and perfecter of our faith. The, the imagery here is also interesting because it's one of the Greek games, yep. one of... Uh, competing in an athletic competition of running, but it's not a sprint. Not a sprint. It's it's the language used, you know, for a marathon. Paul uses a lot of athletic languages in, in Paul, but we see that used throughout Scripture. And the most common one is that of of a marathon because the sprint imagery is, man, so many can take off at a sprint and go in their faith. And we probably, so many have had seasons where it is a sprint, and then you see like, the pace slow. And really, this is talking about the marathon. And in chapter 11, you see a lot of these saints of the faith. And when you look at their stories of Abraham, of Noah, of Moses, what's beautiful about them, their stories are not stories of perfection. That's right. Their stories are stories of faithfulness in midst of the trials and in midst of the failures of life. As they fail, as they struggle, they continually tether back to God. And that's what finishing well is, is, is to continually throughout our life that we don't abandon the faith, that we don't leave. And it, it talks here about let us lay aside every weight in sin. Um, it's easy to focus on the sin that entangles us. Yep. I think we get that and we could start talking about that for a while. But this idea of the weight that entangles us is a little bit different and a little bit more nuanced. Mm. And I think really... For us to run the race well, it applies. Because the idea here is it's not talking about things that are necessarily good or bad, you know, good or evil. It's talking about things that slow us from running the race. Right. So for some people, it may be a change of a, a habit that's not necessarily bad. I heard a, a story of one guy who, who was playing, you know, so much golf. Golf's not evil. Nothing wrong with golf. Right. But his... It was taking so much time that his faith walk, his family life, all those things were struggling that he had to lay aside that weight uh, to, to persevere in those areas. Again, that's why it's nuanced, because we don't say doing that is, is wrong. We just say you've got to be willing to lay aside the things that are slowing you from really being able to persevere and to continue to run the race well and walk with the Lord, fixing your eyes, not on the saints. They encourage you. They're not, but they're not what you ultimately fix your eyes on. It's Jesus. That's right, and it's a good uh, point there about the weight because even here in Paul's specific analogy is, I mean, these runners would literally strip down anything that encumbered them from the effectiveness and efficiency of their running would literally be physically removed because they wanted to compete at the highest level possible. Now we're not competing to be, you know, the best Christian versus other mm-hmm. Christians. But we are competing in a sense uh, of against or for endurance and against falling away, which is what he's been exhorting this church uh, towards the whole time. And the weight is a good point, Steve, because I, you know, I like to think through it through the grid of stirring and stealing. There are certain things that, like you said, they're they're morally neutral. Yeah. They're not good. They're not bad, but they can steal our affections away from Christ, or they can stir us towards Christ. So you know, some people really connect with God from being outdoors, for example. Outdoors is morally neutral in and of itself, but it may stir their affections towards God. So I would say you need to fill your life more with that. 
But your golf's a good example. If your anger or attitude or it's consuming your thoughts, then that's stealing affection away from Jesus. That's something to remove. And so it could be even a, a fun or meaningful conversation in your gospel journey groups to say, hey, uh, okay, let's put the sin category over here to the side. What are just these morally neutral, not bad, not good things about life that stir or steal your affections? Let's remove what steal our affections. Look, And a lot of that's, TV shows, certain Netflix shows, certain, I mean, there's a theme of darkness that runs through most entertainment programming mm-hmm. now. It's hard to see how that stirs affections for Jesus. And it may, in subtle ways, be stealing affections from Jesus. So y'all could kick around in gospel journey groups, you know, this idea of stealing and stirring, and let's remove the stealing and let's pursue the, the things that stir our affections for the Lord. Yeah, and I think one of the great challenges in any group when you have this discussion is, these things are morally neutral. So while some people really do need to lay aside something and say, I'm setting this aside, the person right next to them may not need to. That's, and that's that, Romans 14. Just yeah. our conscience kind of has to be our guide in that. Yeah. yeah that's so, a great point. Um, but it is the, the, the picture is that of a, of, a, of a long race of a marathon. And, and that's something I've, I'm, a, I'm a runner. So for me, that imagery, a marathon is such a different type of race. Because for most, the goal is to finish well. Mm. And in order to finish well, you've got to do a lot of training. Uh, during the race, you've got to make sure you're taking water and doing things. There's, it's a lot more than a short race where it's just like, go give it your all and be done. This is a, a, a strategic endurance and continuing to persevere, which is what the, the, the Christian life is, is like. I, uh, there's been, mm. in a marathon, in the middle of it, people will have points where they're very low and will slow down. And then they'll speed back up. And that's a lot of how our Christian life looks like. There's points where we are in deep struggle. And then there's points where we're thriving. And uh, it's to be faithful to the end. And that's where we, we don't measure it by our performance. And that's where we get into trouble. Right. We measure, uh, and measure is not a word I like to use. The goal is finish. The, to finish, finish faithfully. That's right, to be finish. Faithful, you know, and to finish well. So That's exactly uh, right. You know, I'm too a runner. Steve. Yes, I like, exactly. I like to run away from running uh, and exercise. Uh, and, and to finish out verse two, the example of completing this marathon that includes pain and suffering is Jesus. Mm-hmm. Right. It, who for the joy set before him endured the cross all the way to the end, despising the shame and now is seated at the right hand of God. He did finish. Yeah. Endured the cross, was risen from the grave, and now sits at the right hand of God. I think that's key, too, for groups is we fix our eyes on Jesus. Um, one of the things I struggle with is I'll look and I'll be like, how's the person next to me that I'm sort of, you know, right. in the same place of life with? How are they doing in their faith? It seemed to be. How's this person doing? And I'll be looking, and that becomes suddenly my standard. And sometimes that's good because it inspires me to do better in other areas. Sometimes it's bad because none of us— are, are perfect. None of us have it all. So right. the who we fix our eyes on is Christ. That's right. And I think it's so important that we continually tether back to that, that as Christians, we're rooting and encouraging each other, which is sort of what he's going to in the next part, um, is not growing weary in uh, the midst of the race. You know, don't grow faint-hearted. Don't grow weary. That's right. Continue on. Well, and to keep the analogy here of the author of Hebrews, uh, uh, when the weariness sets in, so if you're running a marathon, which I've <clears throat> never done, uh, never will do, Lord willing, unless God sends a burning bush to tell me to do it, 
uh, says, consider him who endured. So we're considering Christ, but not Mm -hmm. just this kind of big picture, just sort of ambiguously think about Jesus. He begins with the word consider. That word is a, it's one of mathematical precision. It's Mm -hmm. intentional, focused. You got to carve out time and really contemplate some things. And here's the first, he endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Apparently, there's some pressure, social pressure, relational pressure, uh, on these Christians receiving this letter uh, from non-believers, you know, whether they're being ridiculed or persecuted, whatever it is. And, and the author is saying, hey, Jesus went through the same thing. Not only did he go through the same thing, he went through the same thing with an intensity that none of us will ever experience. Mm-hmm. So again, if he is the author and perfecter of our faith, then we can trust if he could finish in infinitely uh, harder circumstances and sufferings, then he can bring us to completion and finishing in in lesser sufferings and circumstances. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I really think that's the point he's trying to draw home here is if the Father could bring Jesus to completion till the end, then Jesus too can bring us to completion till the end. Yeah. And in, in that verse 7, it says, Our struggle against sin hasn't resulted in us having to shed our blood like Christ has. He's already done that for us. So the intensity of our struggle with sin does not match the intensity with which Christ defeated sin and with which he had to struggle with sin. And I think sometimes we'll lessen Jesus' struggle with sin, that he actually did struggle with it. Oh, yeah. And he defeated it and he was victorious over it. Yeah, and and that's a great point. And look, look, that's not us trying to shame anyone this morning, saying your struggles are less than or not important. Like they're yeah. very real. Yeah, struggles. That's all very real. It hits us hard. Uh, we understand that. It's more of an encouragement of going. If Jesus had it at a scale beyond anything we'll ever taste and experience, but finished, then we too, because of Christ, can also finish. It's it's an exhortation. Yeah, it's encouragement. Look That's toward right. him. That's right. Not a shame of good grief. Jesus had it worse than you, and he finished. What's wrong with you? That's not the tone mm-hmm. of the passage um, here from the author. Um, now we move to this next section, Steve, which is an interesting one. Uh, of verses five through eleven really centers on this idea of discipline. Yeah, a couple different ways people take the idea of discipline here. Uh, contextually, it may fit best that, that this idea of discipline. These are sufferings for their faith that is bringing them to a sense of, I think it's purifying the church here in Hebrews, uh, this local gathering. It is uh, in some ways revealing who the true children of God are in these circumstances. And look, it, it's the counterintuitive thing about our faith is when we actually, su- and, and, and to pause here, uh, it's probably good to draw a line on what suffering actually is in this passage. There are general ways we suffer in this life because the world's uh, affected by the original sin of Adam and Eve. I mean, it is so, so cancers, sickness, death, natural disasters, all of those things come upon us, and those are suffering. That is a mm-hmm. sense of suffering. That's not the idea of suffering here. This is specific suffering because you're wanting to follow Jesus. This is a suffering that comes upon you, not because you're human and in a falling world, but because you are uh, specifically a Christian. Does that distinction make sense? So that that is where he's headed here with the suffering. Uh, and, and so that reveals, 
you know, if you persevere through that, it's an encouragement, it's an assurance. Okay, I really mm-hmm. do belong to the Lord. But then secondarily, there's an application of discipline that goes sometimes the manifestation of God's grace is his corrective discipline to give us what it takes to cause us to turn from our sin. And presumably the problem here in this church are people are flirting with leaving the faith. Mm-hmm. And in that, God will, in his divine kindness, which doesn't feel like kindness, start giving them consequences because he loves them too much to just let them go. Does that make sense? Yeah, and the picture he gives here, which is a picture that so many can relate to, is that of a father who loves their children and is going to discipline their child. Uh, I don't think any father uh, enjoys disciplining their child. It's not something I enjoy. But when I see my child heading in the wrong direction, I will step in and intervene in a disciplinary, not not looking to punish them, but to discipline them. That's right. So that they go, so that they head in the right direction to be corrective. And that's what God wants to do with us. But that never, discipline in this sense doesn't feel good. Yeah, it's never something we, we crave. Yeah. Um, and look, this illustration is not unique to me at all. I, I've heard it somewhere else. But when we think of a father and his children, and look, the Old Testament lays the discipline uh, onus on the father to mm-hmm. discipline the children, to correct them, to teach them the ways of the Lord. But Steve, you've got four kids. I've got three. I think the oldest between the two of us is, is 10, maybe, same maybe 10. Uh, our kids are little and still do lots of dumb things that they're just not thinking when they do it. One of those easy illustration is is running into the road or playing in the street, you know, which my kids love to do, live on a mm-hmm. cove. Uh, but there are parameters in which they're allowed to do that. So if I catch them in the road when I'm not outside, then they do feel a holy wrath of their father. What mm-hmm. it, is it because I hate them? No, it's because I want better for them, which is life. I want them to be safe. And, and, and to live and live again to play another day. So I will discipline them in that moment. Do they like that? No. Does it save their life? Yes. Yeah. The idea is that they share in uh, what this life has to offer. And in verse 10, it talks about we're disciplined to share in the holiness that Christ gives us. And, and holiness is something we don't talk a whole lot about in, uh, I guess, the, the church in in. In our Western culture, I feel like I don't hear a lot of holiness talked about. But that is something for the follower of Christ. We are to crave to be holy. We're to desire to be holy um, because it's for God's glory and it is for for our good. Like that's the best way we can live is pursuing holiness. So that's where God's discipline. And it mentions in verse 10, it's a short time. Short time. This life is short. The, The things we endure uh, and, and the scheme of that are, are short. So God disciplines us for a short time to sanctify us, to uh, make us more like his son. And these things are for for our good. Yeah, that's a great point as he, he moves towards uh, uh, the end of this this idea on discipline. He finishes in verse 11, like you mentioned in 10, holiness uh, we've already kind of mentioned the idea that, look, discipline in the moment feels painful. It's not pleasant, but look, it does yield good fruit, fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. And then verse 12, therefore, so because of all of this, okay, so 
we got this great crowd, cloud of witnesses by which we draw uh, encouragement and, and remembering the faithfulness of their lives. We've got the ultimate example and author and perfecter of our faith in Jesus who endured towards the end. We've got the reality of God loves his children enough to discipline them, to bring them back to him. Because of all of that, I love verse 12. 12 is kind of like the, the man up. Or I don't know what ladies would say. The woman up speech is lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, Make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Verse 12 is kind of this. Look, don't sit around and just think about this stuff. we got to do something. And it's this encouragement. Keep going. There's this active call. I love it. One of my friends, Pastor First of Ankle Luffman, says, is grace is, is always opposed to earning, mm-hmm. but it is not opposed to effort. Yeah. There's this partnership in our sanctification and growth in Christ that we have with the Holy Spirit is saying, look, you can't lean on a shovel and pray for a hole. There's this active part of us saying, okay, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to keep going. And I'm going to dig into this reservoir of strength in Christ, and I'm going to get up. I'm going to quit, as the author says here, drooping my hands, strengthening my knees by the power of Christ, and I'm going to keep, in your marathon analogy, I'm going to keep running. We, we set our minds on that. There's an idea of striving, a pursuit. Uh, even here he uses in, in verse 14 to strive, and this is a practical implication of what Christ has done, how we live. We strive to live at peace with others. So That's right. it's not something that we just take lightly. No, there, there is a, a striving to, to live that way. It's um, with, with brothers and sisters in Christ, we strive to live at peace. It doesn't mean we uh, don't have our differences and that we don't stand up for the areas that we uh, firmly believe from rooted in God's word, but we strive. We strive and keep going to verse 15. We don't strive alone. Yeah. Right. See to it that no one fails to obtain. There's this idea of awareness and knowledge of the lives of one another that we are in, in watching and in, in helping each watching over and helping each other walk towards Christ or do this race of endurance that, that we know what's going on with one another. And it says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Uh, and so there should at least be a handful of people for me at Harvest that know what's going on in my life and I know what's mm-hmm. going on in theirs. Like, I'm not going to know what's going on in 1,500 people's lives. That's, you know, that, mm-hmm. that's asinine, impossible. I can't, I would never be able to know that. But I can know what's going on in your life yep. or, or, you know, Bill's life or Antonio or somebody that I spend a lot of time with. Yeah. And if I sense there's something that's hindering you from running the race to endurance, then I need to step in in that moment. And help uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit bring you back uh, to keep the analogy going forward to put you back on course yeah. to help you get back in the race and keep running. And there may be some people in your gospel journey groups that they're in a season where they just need encouragement. It's a mm-hmm. tough season. They may need you just put your arm around them, pick them, and say, "Hey, we can do this. We're not going to give up. Let's keep going." Uh, and maybe in your gospel journey groups, it's a time to say, "Hey, look, I, maybe it's a confession of I'm in this season." Like, I don't understand what God's doing. I'm exhausted. He's not answering my prayers in ways that I've longed for him to. I just feel like giving up. And that's where uh, alongside one another we have the, the opportunity and privilege of saying, hey, I'm going to walk alongside of you, and you're going to get through this. And here's how I've gotten through it in the past, and we're going to both together keep running this race of endurance towards Christ. Yeah, and I think that's even in our gospel journey groups and our discipleship of others, we sometimes mistakenly think I've got to know a certain amount and oh, have yeah. a certain amount of information. 
when so much of it is being present, walking with a person and being in the midst of the struggle with them, That's loving right. them, caring for them, encouraging them, beat it, building them up, meeting them at the place where they are and helping them to fix their eyes on Jesus. That's I, right. I'm not the answer. I'm not the solution to your problems. He is. Fix your eyes on him. And let's encourage each other to both continue to do that. That's a big point of the groups. And I think as we so often, so many people will feel inadequate. And that, that can be a good feeling to, to have is, is our inadequacy. But Christ is completely adequate. That's and right. we keep pointing people to, uh, to him. And that's what these groups really uh, one of the big strengths of them are is is we're in it with people, getting to know them, love them, care them and for them, and point them to Jesus. Yeah, and with no pretense. I mean, I think, Steve, you and I would both be lying if we hadn't had moments along the way where we've sat down and been like, come on, Lord, like, <laughs> really? I don't know if I can keep keep doing this right now. This I'm exhausted. This isn't making sense. You feel distant from me. Uh, and the ways of the world in that moment, it's, it's it's appealing sometimes. Just go, I'm going to go out and just try and make as much money as I can mm-hmm. and have as comfortable a life as I can because at least that's tangible. Sometimes the work of God in our life doesn't feel that tangible. The fruit of that is going to be born years down the road. And that's where I need other men in my life. they got to keep me on course, give me perspective. But also at the same time, in, in our groups, let's not pretend like we haven't all tasted this at some point. Mm-hmm. And, and we can empathize with one another and be compassionate with one another if somebody is in one of those seasons. Um, all right, let's finish out chapter 12, Steve, and then we'll yeah. we'll uh, uh, do chapter 13 next week. Uh, really, 18 through 29 is, is uh, this big idea of Old and New Covenant brought back into play. Yep. And he does this in ways that would have made sense as original audience without much explanation Probably need some explanation in our context, so I'm glad you're with us this morning. But yeah. but uh, uh, before I throw it to you, just to kind of set the table, uh, we have Sinai and Zion as these two mountains. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, one symbolizing the Old Covenant, one symbolizing the New Covenant. One, a scene of fear and dread and being unapproachable, and one saying, uh, all who call upon the name of the Lord are welcome. And so uh, if you could here, just for a few minutes, maybe unpack the distinctness of this old and new covenant and look, Sinai's honor just symbols uh, yeah. of these old and new covenants. And then the greater uh, covenant, this new covenant and what's so, so rich about it that, which is what we exist in now. Yeah. The, the, the Sinai picture, you know, it goes back to Moses. Uh, the people have been led out of slavery in Egypt. And now God is going to tell them here is how you live in light of who I am. So he's giving them commands laws to live by and again these are for uh for their good but it's a terrifying thing that they experience there's trembling with the people the people are are in fear and the law one of the key components of the law is to show us you can't do this mm. you, you you can't keep these laws in and of yourself you can't white knuckle it you can't be you're going to break the heart and intention of it and that's where christ calls us back to that's why we have uh, zion that is so necessary where christ went to the cross and we see uh you know the idea of zion even there there's the uh, sacrificial system that was put in place there before christ was the ultimate complete sacrifice that we can't obey 
perfectly. We can't keep this. No matter how hard we're going to try, we're going to fail. And even if we think outwardly we're looking like we got together, we're gonna, our, the intentions of our heart mm. are going to draw us away. We're going to be sinful. We're going to break this. And in Zion is this picture of you're not good enough. And that's really the, the starting place of repentance is a recognition mm-hmm. that great. I cannot save myself by keeping the law. I cannot save myself by good works. I cannot save myself by religious practices, by attending church, by speaking church language, by being a, quote, good person, by being a humanitarian, by coming from a certain family. None of those will save me. I have to throw myself on the mercy of the sacrifice that Christ has had for my sins. And that's where Zion takes us. And even in the Old yep. Testament, you see this picture of Zion where they would, you know, it's often called Mount Moriah. Those two are synonymous. It gets a little confusing. But that's where the sacrifice was offered there on the temple in the Old Testament, a picture of Christ coming and being the fulfillment of that. But they see a picture of your sin can only be covered by blood sacrifice. That's right. And there should be fear and trembling if we're left with only the law to try to save us because it can't. Yeah. It's not meant to. And this is overly simplistic to wind this down. But in in some sense, if we return to those old ways of living, uh, like you've articulated underneath the old covenant and the law, the primary thing that's going to dominate us is fear. Fear of never knowing if we've done enough. Fear of losing relationship with God. Fear. It's just going to be saturated and dominated with fear. If we reject that and live in light of the new covenant, that is going to predominantly, when we're operating in faithfulness, be be defined by freedom. Mm-hmm. And so we can we can. This is what's so counterintuitive about these people in in this situ- context here wanting to depart from Christ and return to this old system is you're in what world would you choose fear over freedom? That's really what's laid down in these two covenants. And we have right now the opportunity to live in the freedom of Christ or the fear that comes with our own performance and earning our salvation. And that's, that's really the dichotomy, uh, which is overly simplistic, but that he lays out right here. Well, and that takes, takes us all the way back to the very first verses of this chapter, verses one and two, where, we're only going to live in freedom as we fix our eyes on Christ. Right. You know, if I fix my eyes on what, on, on Abraham, on Moses, if I fix my eyes on what uh, my, my friends are doing, who are, who are seeking the Lord and how they're doing, if that's what I'm fixing my eyes on, I'm going to be uh, bitter. Uh, I'm going to, it's going to lead to all sorts of unhealthy emotions. And it's going to lead me to, to fear. Like you're saying, I'm going to be fearful that I'm not good enough. I'm not a good enough performing Christian. Look at how much better they are at right. living the Christian life than I am. But when I fix my eyes on Jesus, I go, uh, uh, it's him. That's right. That's who I trust. That's who I lean into. I keep coming back to him because I'm not, I'm never going to be good enough. That's right. I'm never going to, um, uh, be perfect. I'm never going to reach any of those standards and I can look to other people who are doing well, but no, I, I look to Christ. So that's where it takes us back to. And in that last verse, um, 28, it says, therefore we can be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Mm. And there's a grateful, there's a deep gratefulness that we are a people who are kingdom people. We've been brought in to, to the kingdom that's, that's ushered in into the lives of believers. It's not yet here in its full, but Christ has brought it in and we live uh, for that kingdom and that's a freeing way to live. Amen. Well, Steve, thanks again. 
yes. this week. Look forward to being with you next week as we finish up this pathway through the book of Hebrews. Hebrews.